Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, our readings for this third Sunday of Easter provide very important lessons, I think, in fundamental Christianity, what it it really means to be a Christian. They also function as a sort of master class in preaching. So I think anybody interested in being a Christian, but especially anyone who is involved in the preaching and teaching task, a lot to learn from these, uh, these wonderful readings for the third Sunday of Easter. What I especially notice is, is this tension or this play between sin and grace. You know, in the proclamation of Christianity, in the living of Christianity, there's this tension between sin and grace. And to get this tension wrong, to emphasize unduly one side or the other, produces a lot of mischief, actually, in religion. So let's take a look now at the first reading. It's taken from the third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, and it gives us access to one of the first Christian sermons ever preached. So the setting is St. Peter and St. John. They're in the temple precincts. They've just healed the crippled man, and now the crowd is gathered, et cetera, et cetera. And Peter begins to give what the scholars call a charismatic sermon, meaning it's about the charisma or the basic proclamation. So I remember telling my students years ago at the seminary that it's very important for them to study these charismatic forms because all sermons really should have fundamentally the same form. So what do we hear? Peter says first, look, this healing came not from Peter himself, but from Jesus, who had, as the apostle insists, been raised from the dead by the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. So there's there's a line I want to unpack a little bit. Notice, please, how the word of grace always comes first in Christian preaching and proclamation. So what does Peter first say? First thing out of his mouth is, Jesus, risen from the dead, the healing coming from him. Starting with the breakthrough of grace is the biblical approach. What you call the primacy of grace, that principle that undergirds the whole Bible, should undergird all preaching and proclamation. We always start with some version of the good news, as Peter does here. The good news is the risen Jesus is among you, still affecting the healing of his suffering people. If we begin the spiritual life with sin, things come quickly to unravel. Now, now don't get nervous. I'm going to talk about sin. (laughs) It's very important that we do. But we don't start the conversation with sin. When we do that, not only do we kind of depress our audience, we start with their, their failure, their sin, but we set things up for a sort of distorted spirituality. So begin with grace, begin with the good news. 
Secondly, now I'm still looking at that, that opening line. Notice how Peter identifies clearly the God he's talking about. So who's the God who's been active here in the healing of this man? Well, it's not any old God. It's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I know for Christian ears, this might all sound rather obvious. But you know, the more you think about it, both in Peter's time and ours, it's not obvious at all. Because both then and now, there are thousands of, of views of God floating around. Again, just think of the marketplace of ideas in, in Peter's time, from the, the Greek world and the Roman world and the Egyptian world, et cetera, et cetera. There were lots of ideas of God. Same is true today, isn't it? You know, I'm indebted in many ways to uh, the work of, of Christian Smith, the great um, sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. And he his now uh, famous characterization of an extremely popular view of God among especially the young namely moralistic therapeutic deism. What he means there is most young people, when, when they use the word God, think of God in kind of a deist way, a distant uh, a figure way out there, way back there, who's there to kind of help us when we need help, the therapeutic side, and moralistic. So if I, if I do the right things and I'm, I'm kind of a good person, I'll please this, uh, this God. Well, that's a view of, of God, very popular, very common. It's just not the God of the Bible. Or one I've talked about, too, before, Robert Bella, another sociologist of religion. Remember, he talked about Sheilaism as the most basic form of American religion. And it was based upon the musings of a young nurse he interviewed called Sheila. And she said, well, look, I've been, you know, all my life looking at different religions. And I take this from here and that from there. And I kind of piece them together in my own little way. And I call it Sheilaism. And his, his uh, conclusion was that Sheilaism is the dominant religion of, of America. Once again, uh, it's not the God of the Bible. So the one we're talking about, the one Peter was talking about, the one we today, if we're doing Christian proclamation, we're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of biblical revelation. See, and friends, this has such enormous implications across the board. Now draw out all of the consequences from this view of God. And you have this densely textured biblical way of understanding God. Okay, the third thing I want you to see as we look at this, this sermon of Peter, and, and again, not because it's first or most important, it's not. What's first is always grace. But because this one, I think, is most often overlooked today, and now I am indeed talking about the fact of sin. The declaration of sin, the fact of sin, the pain caused by sin is essential to biblical and Christian proclamation. I mean, look, no one has ever savored being accused of sin, whether in Peter's time or ours. But especially at our time, there's an almost allergy uh, against admitting any sort of personal fault. And what's the what's the paradigmatic problem of our time? What's the the what's if you want the one sin that people will still acknowledge is judgmentalism, right? So I mean, nobody wants to acknowledge or or to uh, uh, take sin seriously. You know, and there are a lot of reasons for this. I've I've talked about all these in different contexts. You know, the moral relativism of our time. 
Pope Benedict spoke so memorably about that, the dictatorship of relativism. You know, it's true for you, but not for me. It's wrong for you, but not for me. You, you walk your way, I walk mine. See, well, given that view of things, then there's no room really for sin. That's just an old hang-up. But see, I think a second reason why we're so uneasy with sin in our time is this almost total embrace of the victim mentality. You know, if there's anything the matter with me, it's because of you. <laughs> you know, it's it's someone else or some institution that's victimized me. And that's why if I got something wrong with me, that's why it's I'm a victim. See, here's the problem everybody. And I you know, I know the cultural uh, uh, constraints of our time. I know the cultural influences, but when we lose sight of sin, we lose sight of Christianity, period. Why? Because Christianity is not a mysticism. It's not a philosophy. It's a salvation religion, right? Salus means health. It's a saving religion. It presumes there's something the matter. Okay? Listen now to St. Peter. So he begins with grace. You know, this the great healing of this man that's come through the power of Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all that. But now listen to what he says. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. The author of life you put to death. That's St. Peter now talking to the crowds in the temple precincts. So imagine like you're in you're in Washington, D.C., or you're like in, in midtown Manhattan. You're in the center of the culture. He's got people around him for whom religion is the most important thing. And that's what he says? <laughs> I mean, these are not the words of someone who's trying to mollify his audience or win them over or capture their benevolence. You know, that's an old um, a principle in rhetoric, the captatio benevolentiae. To capture the benevolence of your audience is a, is a very important rhetorical move. Well, I don't know about you, but this is not exactly captatio benevolentiae to say the author of life came and you people put him to death. You denied the, the righteous one and asked that a murder be released to you. I mean, our culture would undoubtedly find this language intolerably judgmental. But so it goes. In the presence of the crucified Jesus, we know that we are sinners. You know, I've talked about this before. It's from St. John of the Cross, but we all know this. The light that shines on the pane of glass reveals the smudges, right? So when you're directed toward the light, that's precisely when you know what's the matter with you. All right, so with that Petrine sermon in mind, let's take a quick look at our magnificent gospel, which is from that masterpiece within the masterpiece, the 24th chapter of Luke. So even as the disciples from Emmaus are telling the disciples uh, uh, that, that the Lord has, has uh, appeared to them, even as they're telling that story, Jesus appears in their midst. He says, peace be with you. Once again, the program always commences with grace. The peace that comes from the resurrection, the peace that the world can't possibly give, that's the first word of Jesus, peace be with you. But then we hear the disciples were, quote, startled and terrified. You know, I've always felt it's not just because they're seeing something extraordinary that they didn't expect. I mean, I think part of their fear was 
this one is back for revenge. I mean, this is the man whom we've denied and we betrayed and we ran from him in his moment of need. And notice now how readily Jesus shows them his hands and his feet, which is to say, the marks of his crucifixion. The author of life came and you put him to death. The crucified Jesus is permanently a judgment upon the world. You see what I mean? Jesus showing his wounds is the author of life reminding us what we did to him. The minute we're tempted to say everything's okay with us, remember the wounds of Jesus. Now, notice two other moves of the risen Jesus here. He reminds the startled disciples of the great story in which his resurrection is properly situated. Listen, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Once again, we're not talking about the vague God of the new age or the God of moralistic therapeutic deism or the God of Aristotle, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, finally, the commission. Thus, it's written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, listen now, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name. Grace breaks through, right? Peace be with you, shalom. This makes us more, not less aware of our sin. We see his wounds. And that knowledge leads to repentance, conversion, the turning around of our lives. That's it, everybody. Those are the basic elements of any Christian proclamation. If any one of them is missing, or if the order isn't respected, the message falls apart. Spend a little time today with these great um, readings and realize what it means to proclaim Jesus risen from the dead. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.